Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing Shane Black's 70s throwback, The Nice Guys, the sequel comedy Neighbors 2, Sorority Rising, and The Angry Birds Movie. Let's get started. I think I'm invincible. I don't think I can die. Let me. It's not the smart idea. What, what, March, March! <laughs> Who are the world's worst detectives? You got a cool head, though. I made your head small because I know you're sensitive about terrible. how big it is. Yeah. Rated R in theaters May 20th. I think then the thing about Shane Black is a lot of people probably don't know him by name the way they do, like, Spielberg or Christopher Nolan or, you know, guys like that. But they definitely would know his work and probably enjoy his work without knowing who he is. For those who don't know, Shane Black is the guy who wrote the original Lethal Weapon. He's been a major action movie writer for a long time. He's done Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. He did Iron Man 3. And his latest movie is a 70s throwback starring Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling called The Nice Guys. And it's a complete throwback. I mean, the only thing they didn't do was try to film in a... 70s cinemascope style they use modern cameras but other than that i mean they did everything just about right as far as i could tell costuming was great soundtrack was phenomenal action was great and the only thing i could possibly say against it is it's kind of misogynist because it does it features countless amounts of topless women and it does deal with the porn industry but at the same time I feel like that is part of the gratuitous nature of the 70s. The 70s was the time when you could get away with topless women in PG. And there's a point in Airplane, I remember specifically, in 1977, where there's just a gratuitous shot of a woman coming up, showing her boobs full frame on camera, and then just running to the back of the plane. And then you you never heard from her again. So that was part and parcel of the 70s, and... I don't know if that's why they included it or if it's because it deals heavily with the porn industry and sort of that 70s Hollywood debauchery that is part of the porn industry. But it's probably the only thing you could hold against the movie. But at the same time, one of the major characters is Ryan Gosling's daughter, who does a lot of the major legwork and investigation. So I think there's a balance, but... You could definitely make the argument that it's, you know, gratuitous nature of topless women. But at this, it, anyway, you could go on for days arguing in circles about that. But I will say that I enjoyed The Nice Guys throughout. I don't think there was a single point in the movie that I didn't enjoy myself. I loved Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling's chemistry. I loved the banter and the dialogue between all of the characters. I mean, if you've seen the trailer, there's great points like Ryan Gosling fidgeting with... Because that's the thing. Ryan Gosling is a sort of antsy sort... Ryan Gosling is kind of an anxious guy. He's an alcoholic and he's a single father trying to raise this girl after an accident that happened. He's very squeamish and he's kind of clumsy. And if you've seen the trailer, you remember the scene where he's like fumbling over himself in the bathroom stall 
at when Russell Crowe comes to see him. And he's holding, trying to hold the gun against Russell Crowe after he drops a cigarette into his pants, sitting on the toilet, reading a magazine. And he's trying to fidget between holding the gun and holding the door open, getting the cigarette out of his pants. And it's, it's very farcical. And there's a lot of that sort of comedy of errors in this movie where the two of them are kind of fumbling their way through this investigation and involves the Department of Justice's daughter being making a porno movie while the Department of Justice is investigating the big three auto companies in Detroit for ignoring safety regulations, something with the catalytic converter, which I think was a big issue at the time. And it's... It's very... I mean, this is probably some of Shane Black's best work. And after Iron Man 3, which I feel was sort of taken away from him by Marvel Studios and sort of made it their way, I kind of wonder what Shane Black would have done if they had just let him do his thing. Because when you get pure, unadulterated Shane Black, you get the nice guys. You get stuff like that, kiss, kiss, bang, bang... Probably some others I'm not able to think of because I don't have internet access at the moment. But it's, it is a phenomenal movie. And except for a featuring credit with Kim Basinger, who plays the prosecutor for the Department of Justice, it's a fairly unknown cast. I mean, these are all mostly newcomers. The girl playing Ryan Gosling's daughter is a newcomer. All of the... You know, the only other name you would recognize is Keith David is one of the hitmen that's trying to stop Gosling and Crow from pursuing their investigation. But other than that, it's all fairly new names. I'm honestly trying to think of anything else to say about the movie. But I'm coming up with a blank because this movie was phenomenal and I can't think of... Any way else to describe it without giving too much away. And I kind of don't want to do that this time. Well, I did go into spoiler territory for Civil War because I was kind of gush and then go deep into the Marvel Cinematic Universe for that episode. Here, I'm willing to let you enjoy it for yourself. You know, I don't want to give too many of the jokes away that haven't been given away by the trailer. I don't want to give too many of the plot twists because I will say it is kind of familiar territory like you can kind of see where everything's going but at the same time the way they play it makes it so that it's not trying to be hacky it's trying to be clever about it so you can kind of see where things are going but the way they play it off isn't you know eye rolling as something that i'll get into with angry birds later on when it comes to familiar story beats if you've seen enough crime movies especially stuff from the 70s era you could kind of figure out where the story is going, but just because you know where it's going doesn't mean that it's an un- that doesn't make the ride there less enjoyable. If you get what I'm saying, so if you get the chance, please go support this movie. It isn't doing very well at the moment. Last I heard, unfortunately, Angry Birds is dominating the box office, and the other two movies that came out are kind of ambling along. And hopefully people get to see this on DVD or on demand because this is a phenomenal action comedy and it is some of Shane Black's best work. And I would hate to see it fail because of a stupid mobile video game adaptation. 
They don't understand that there's no I in sorority. There's two, actually. There's actually, there's just one. No, that's a Y. No, in the middle. That's an O. S-O-R-O-I-T-I-T-Y. Sororitity? That's how you spell it. You think the titty is silent? Stop it! Stop it! Next up, the sequel that no one demanded, but I strangely welcome. Neighbors 2, Sorority Rising. Now, I was a, I've been a pretty big fan of the recent string of Evan Goldberg, I believe his name is, and Seth Rogen comedies. I think they started officially with Pineapple Express, but since this is the end, I pretty much enjoyed everything they've done. I love This is the End. I enjoyed the heck out of Neighbors, and I'm interested to see what they do with their first animated movie, Sausage Party, this summer. I feel like that's going to be one of those weird stoner comedies that doesn't work perfectly, but is still just this weird thing that you never imagined yourself watching. But for right now, we're going to talk about the sequel to Neighbors. And if you haven't seen Neighbors, it's basically Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne are a married couple with a new child when a frat house run by Dave Franco and Zac Efron moves next door. And at first they get along, but... Eventually, the two parents' old genes start kicking in, and they call the cops to try and calm down one of the parties that the frat is throwing. And then that entails a prank war, as they call it in the movie, between the frat house and the parents and one of Seth Rogen's co-workers, played by Ike Barinholtz, which entails probably the most iconic gag from that is the various airbags that are take were taken out of their Subaru and just planted around their house. And so Seth Rogen trips over these different airbags and it's like this strange, like quick motion of the body flying and you can't tell. I think it's CG, but it could easily be like a, a real fast shot of a dummy. And I'm not sure how they've done it yet but I'd be really interested to see the behind-the-scenes for that gag. Because that returns for this sequel. And I would say that Neighbors probably could have done with somebody kind of streamlining the story because it does try to tackle the idea of the Gen Xers getting old and being parents and not having to deal with the fact that they're not the partiers anymore. They have to be more responsible. And also... You know, Zac Efron kind of coming to realize that he's about to graduate from college and he's not sure what he's going to do with his life. But it's not very well done when it tries to tackle those aspects. When it goes for the gags, especially between Efron and Rogan in that first movie, that's when it's at its best. When it tries to get serious and introspective, it feels almost unwarranted because it's hardly ever touched on the rest of the movie. Ultimately, the frat house has to be shut down and Zac Efron gets arrested by the cops and taken in because of because he was the president of the fraternity and he was throwing this party that got them in trouble. Neighbors 2 takes place a couple years later because the kid in Neighbors is now like three or four. She's starting to talk and she's a toddler now and they're expecting their second child while Ike Barinholtz and his wife are expecting their first child. 
So now that they have a second child coming, Rose Byrd and Seth Rogen want to move out of the neighborhood and into a bigger house. Well, unfortunately, when they're in escrow, because there's a, and there's this whole bit of them, of the realtor trying to explain to them, you have no idea what escrow is. I tried to explain this to you. You said you understood what was going on. And it's a nice little running, it's, it's a nice little gag at the very beginning of, of the realtor, you know, freaking out on them because they, you know, they had no idea what was going on. But anyway, the old house is in escrow. And meanwhile, Chloe Grace Moretz is a freshman at that college, at the college from the last movie, and she attempts to rush a sorority run by Selena Gomez, who is in a pretty thankless role for this. Unfortunately, sororities aren't allowed to throw parties the way fraternities are. And after meeting some of the other sorority rushers at a frat party where they all agree that the parties suck, it's all creepy guys, and they especially emphasize the fact that a lot of the guys at the frat party don't look like Zac Efron, or don't look like Dave Franco. They aren't all, you know, athletes and, you know, chiseled guys. Some of them are creepy-looking dudes. Some of them are, you know, guys that look like Artie, you know, a young Artie Lang, or, you know, guys that look like Steve Buscemi's second cousin. You know, they're guys that don't look right, and they're obviously creeping on them. And they don't feel safe, and they don't enjoy that environment. And so, Chloe Grace Moretz and two other girls that I don't recognize the name, that I never heard of them before, they're relative newcomers to major film roles, All they all agree to start a sorority outside the Greek system that is allowed to throw parties. And they choose this frat house from the first movie. And so Zac Efron, in a bid to try and find a meaning with his life after the rest of his group, which include Gerard, Car- Gerard Carmichael, Christopher Mintz-Plass, and Dave Franco still returning, reprising their roles, after they all start to move on with their life, career-wise and life goal-wise. There's a whole thing now of Dave Franco just just not even, like, coming out of the closet, but just like, oh, Dave Franco's character's gay now. There was no real... I don't think there was a real point being made in the last movie. It's just kind of a thing now. But at the same time, it's all, like, none of these guys, you'd think big bro, douchebag kind of guys, none of them hold... You know, they're just like, oh, hey, our fraternity brother is gay, and he's about to get married. Awesome! You know, and it's, there's no real, it's, it's played as just, oh, our buddy's getting married. That's it. it. There's no real emphasis on the fact that the character's gay now. You know, as compared to the last movie where there was no real emphasis on sexuality other than, you know, heteronormative stuff. You know, guys making out with girls and them having girlfriends and that sort of stuff. Anyway, Zac Efron, kind of lost, not knowing what to do with his life, with everybody kind of moving on past him, agrees to help Chloe Moretz and the other girls start their sorority that can party. And in doing so, kind of gets revenge back at Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne for sending him to jail. And after a good string of gags between the sorority and Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne, the girls reach a point where they don't need Zac Efron anymore, and they feel that he is holding them back. 
and Zac Efron starting to realize, you know, he can't be one of the he can't be one of these young people anymore. He has to be an adult. He has to try and you know lead them in the right direction, not just kind of fulfill their base once, you know, to get back at these parents. And in doing so, he gets cut out from the soror from helping out the sorority, and so he joins. Seth Rogen, Rose Byrne, Ike Barinholtz, and Ike's wife. And then the five of them kind of continue this war between the two houses again. Only this time there's a lot more emphasis on the fact that they're the first real sorority at that college to go outside of the Greek system and throw safe parties for women. Whereas the frat parties are all kind of douchey, nightclub settings, lots of drugs and stuff and it's all and it's mostly catered to the fact that it's a bunch of horny college dudes trying to get laid whereas the sorority parties are you know a lot of the same drugs and alcohol availability but it's not about getting laid it's about having a good time without the need to get laid and it is you know and they do show that it's not just girls at the party like there are plenty of guys that show up for their parties because they realize oh hey we don't just want to throw you know not every guy wants to go to a fraternity party i know i didn't ever really want to go to the fraternity parties when i went to college because i'm not that kind of guy i would i would just sit in the corner you know probably nursing some kind of alcoholic beverage or if it's anything like when i tried to visit when I tagged along for one of my brother's parties in high school, nursing a soda. <laughs> oh, God, I think it was, like, some special brand of Sprite or Sierra Mist where it came with, like, a berry sweetener added to it, and it was just me nursing that, tr walking around the party and realizing, oh, wow, th I don't, I'm not into this. This is, this is not what I'm into. And <laughs> I'm guessing the fraternity parties would probably be a lot worse because unlike the fraternity parties, my brother's parties had people that actually liked me and wanted me around. <laughs> anyway, that's completely off base. Uh, it goes about telling the same storyline as the first movie. And unlike the last movie where it was all big pranks and having to have a victor. This time it's a lot more diplomatic and showing that what the girls were trying to do wasn't bad. You know, it wasn't, you know, this debaucherous thing, the same debauchery that the fraternity was doing. Plus, Rose Byrne and Seth Rogen were ki are kind of at the point where they realize they don't want to keep doing this every time that they run, they run into young people. They're, they just want to be able to live their own lives. So they kind of come to come to the realization that you know this is kind of stupid that what we keep doing, and I gotta say while it does kind of continue with familiar storylines, I did kind of dig the fact that they were kind of pointing out the you know sexism inherent in the Greek life system that says hey hey, fraternities are allowed to throw all kinds of parties. Boys will be boys, but how dare you allow girls to do the same thing? And I don't know how true that is in the current system, because I know that they, they're still, you know, a lot of stuff is, you know, a lot of the fraternity shenanigans are frowned upon and they are kind of shunned by social media for the, for the same stuff they got away with 
probably not even five years ago even. And I wonder if a sorority out, either in or outside of Greek life tried to throw a party like they do in this movie if it would be you know, treated the same way now, if it would be treated like, hey, these are sisters doing it for themselves. I don't know. I'm so far out of collegiate education that I couldn't tell you what would happen if sororities tried to throw parties now or if even fraternities tried to throw parties anymore. And I think that all depends on where the college is because I'm guessing fraternities get away with a lot more in rural colleges or southern colleges. Texas, I'm sure Texas A&M Fraternities have no problem with boys being boys, whereas something in upstate New York or in that upper northwest with Washington and Oregon, if they would get away with the same stuff anymore. I, I couldn't tell you. All I know is I dig that they tackled that. And I also kind of like the fact that Dave, while Dave Franco's character, you know, homosexuality and having a partner is kind of... It feels like an afterthought to be like, oh, hey, it would be cool if one of the characters from the last movie was gay and nobody cared because it's just a thing. It, he's their buddy and him being gay isn't an issue. And I like that they did that. It does kind of feel it feels kind of pandering like they know their audience would be would, you know, eat that up. Whereas, you know, it you know, whereas if it was continued from the last movie, like if it turned out that Dave Franco's character was gay, and he might have opened up about that in the last movie. I don't remember if they did that. I I do know that, once again, Seth Rogen and Zac Efron have amazing chemistry, and I kind of wish they did more comedies outside of this series. I feel like Zac Efron should be in a bunch of more of the stuff that features Seth Rogen and Jonah Hill and that whole crew of the former Judd Apatow actors that kind of do their own thing. And I feel like Zac Efron's almost like a perfect fit for that. He is, I mean, he God, the guy is cut like a diamond. I mean, he, I'm surprised nobody's offered him a superhero role yet. He's got the body for it, and he shows it off in this movie constantly. And at the same time, he's also, like, charming and he, like he plays this character of kind of like the doofy frat guy, you know, form, now former frat guy who doesn't know what to do with his life. He's kind of childlike in a sense. And I feel like he, Zac Efron gets a lot of great lines in this movie. And I, I do think it's kind of inconsistent where there are some points where he does know what's going on uh, about, you know, like when he's trying to explain things to other other characters in the movie, whereas normally he's the dumb one. So I don't know if... It, it's very inconsistent. That part's inconsistent, whereas Seth Rogen and Ike Barinholtz are kind of continuously doofy. And... So, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, nobody really was asking for a Neighbors sequel, but at the same time, I'm not disappointed that we got one. I dig what they were trying to do. I dig the stories they were trying to tell, and I like the angles they were taking with it. And this has got, you know, it continues some of the great, you know, gags of the airline, the airbag uh, bit is back. They do. There's a sequence of Zac Efron and Seth Rogen screwing around with the airbags, 
And there's, you know, there's a good amount of disgusting, you know, stuff. Like, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a throw-up joke, like, right at the beginning of the movie. And it's not perfect, but neither was the first one. So I feel like it's kind of well within that same universe. I do feel like there's a lot that probably got cut out. For probably, for a good reason, I'm guessing, because this is a, a straight 90 minutes, and I feel like trying, there's stuff that was from the trailers that didn't get added in, and I'm guessing they probably are saving that for either an unrated cut, or a director's cut of some kind, or maybe, like, just deleted scenes, because I feel like there's a lot missing. I feel, because, because, I mean, like, they bring back Hannibal Burris, the cop from the first movie, for, like, one scene where it's him and Gerard Carmichael, because Gerard Carmichael's a cop, and it's that's and it's and it's a fun sequence that he's in, but that's it. Like you brought back Hannibal Burris for that one sequence. And I they also bring in Abby Jacobson from Broad City in as the wife of the couple that's trying to buy Seth Rogan's house. And she feels very underutilized. Like anybody could have played her role. So why did you get Abby Jacobson other than you like Abby Jacobson and you want her to be in your movie? Like, I feel I feel she could have done more and there might have been more with her character, but that part probably got cut out for time. So I'd be interested to see what didn't make the cut because it feels like something's missing. And I feel like an extra 20 minutes wouldn't have hurt this movie, but who knows? I also got, I have to admit, I was kind of looking forward to this because I am a, a fan of Chloe Moretz since Kick-Ass. Pretty much everything I've seen her in, she has been good. There hasn't been great, like, the worst movie I've seen her in was Kick-Ass 2, but she was the highlight of that movie. You know, and the Carrie remake was solid, and I thought let the that... You know, unnecessary Americanized version of "Let the Right One In" was decent. I thought she was. I thought she was great in that, and I I I have loved kind of seeing where her career went when we first met her as a preteen, saying all kinds of swear words and shooting guns and wielding like this dual bladed sword and you know kicking ass, and how she's kind of gone. You know, she's done more. Uh, serious role. She did that one where it's like an indie drama about an uh, aging actress redoing a part from a play she did where now she is the older character and Chloe Grace Moretz plays an actress who is essentially being like a Lindsay Lohan or, you know, one of those kind of party girls that this is their way of trying to be serious as an actress. And I haven't seen that I thought, you know, she she was at least playing a different character in that, so she at least got to play a character. I thought she was decent in The Fifth Wave, even though the movie was rote and, you know, completely unnecessary. But she was fine. I mean, she did most of the acting in that movie, as far as I'm concerned. So yeah, Fifth Wave and Kick-Ass 2 are probably the worst movies I've seen her in, but I haven't seen her give a bad performance yet. And I like, you know, I... I'm glad to see that since being a child actress, she is now doing all kinds of, you know, she can do drama, she can do action, she can do comedy. She can do this, you know, raunchy comedy movie, and she, you know, she's not out of place in any of these roles. Like, you see her smoke 
plenty, you know, there's plenty of scenes of her smoking weed in this. And you never feel like, you know, that girl wouldn't smoke weed. You know, whereas there could be plenty of actors and actresses where they try to go outside of the character they're known for, they, you know, people say that would never happen and they don't buy into it. Here, she definitely plays that character well. And I feel, you know, I feel like she does get, you know, get a lot of great scenes in the movie. And I'm gl- I'm interested to see how she follows this up because she's always surprised me with whatever she does. I don't know what she's doing next. I, they're probably going to try and do the sixth wave or whatever the next piece of garbage book in that series is. But I'm interested to see what happens to her next because I, you know, I haven't been disappointed by her career yet. So yeah, Neighbors 2. Nobody really was asking for it, but hey, you know, we got it. It was it was just as good as the first one, so there you go. Oh, wow. It's him. Horrible turn of events. Horrible. Oh boy. The third review this week is the top grossing movie of the entire weekend. The movie that kicked Civil War off the top of the list. The Angry Birds Movie. Official title right there. Oh boy. This movie. Yeah. Um... I mentioned it in the video game review port in the discussion about video game movie adaptations, and I wasn't looking forward to this because all the trailers I saw featured the same piss joke, and that joke goes on for like two, maybe three minutes in the entire in the movie, and it's not the only one. There's plenty of piss and poop and lots of very third grade level humor in this movie. And yet I keep hearing how people are calling somebody said this is this year's Lego movie. And I have to say to that person, what did they watch? The Lego movie was creative and it was clever and it was well written and was able to make this obvious product placement movie into something amazing and The Angry Birds movie is nothing like that. It is a complete cash grab, and it's not clever. And quite frankly, it's it's just another reason for me to question whether or not Jason Sudeikis is even funny. Between this and Mother's Day, and God knows what else I've seen him where he's supposed to be funny and is never funny. Oh, We're the Millers, another one where I never thought he was that funny. I'm beginning to wonder what it is that's funny about him. I'm I'm beginning to question whether or not he was even funny on SNL because I haven't seen him be funny in so long and yet he keeps pumping out these movies and uh, Josh Gad is in this who is probably best known currently as the voice of Olaf from Frozen. He was a he played you know he had a run on Broadway in The Book of Mormon. He is a fantastic, you know, comedic comedic actor and singer. 
and he gets to sing in this movie, and it's completely horned in. Like, there's no reason for it other than, oh, hey, Josh Gad can sing really well. Whereas in Frozen, his he had his own song, and the singing made sense. Here, it's just, oh, hey, Josh Gad sings. So here's five seconds of Josh Gad doing a vocal warm-up. Uh, and I guess that's it. Okay. Before I go any further, here's the basic story. Jason Sudeikis plays the Redbird, the mascot of the Angry Birds franchise. And in this movie, Red is an outcast because he's always angry. And he's always angry because the animators make sure to hit him with absolutely anything they can. Like, it, his entire character is pratfalls and slapstick. And none of it is funny because... None of it is ever really warranted. You know, like the slapstick in Neighbors, like with the airbag joke, that was funny and unexpected because it's, you know, even when you see what's coming, you're just kind of anticipating the pain and there's like a setup for it. Here in, in the Angry Birds movie, it's just right out of the gate, slapstick. And if you're not on board, then God help you because that's going to be a good chunk of the rest of this movie is slapstick humor. And so after Red makes a kid cry at a birthday party, hatch day party, and some gag about him being the first thing the baby, their baby see, so he's now that kid's dad, Red is sentenced to the most brutal punishment that this bird island has anger management and features Maya Rudolph being a yoga instructor essentially because oh god I don't know what it is between this and the new Ice Age movie apparently animators have a thing for yoga jokes and like oh isn't it funny downward dog where you stick your butt in the air and you can you know you're staring into somebody's butt isn't that funny? No, th that's not a joke. You know, it's an awkward circumstance, yes, but that's the joke has a setup. A joke has, you know, timing and a punchline. Just throwing something awkward in there isn't the joke. Ah, and I, I guess that's the thing is, even in The Nice Guys, there's a lot of, Roy Gossin's character is clumsy, and there's a lot of that sort of quick, slapsticky humor that he has, like that bathroom scene from the trailer. And that's warranted because that's not the entire movie. Ryan Gosling is allowed to be a well-rounded character, and he's allowed to have those clumsy moments, especially when he's drunk, as well as be a character that can get things done and can be effective. You know, there's a balance to that, and... The Angry Birds doesn't have that because it's all jingling keys for the kiddies, and yet somehow adults are completely buying into this and eating it up just as the kids are, and I don't get it. Anyway, um, Red meets up at the anger management thing, which features the white bird that shoots eggs out of its butt from the games, who's played by Maya Rudolph, who is essentially just a new-age chick running gag. And there he meets Chuck, played by Josh Gad, the yellow bird, and Bomb, or Bomber Bombs something, 
the exploding blackbird played by Danny McBride, who was trying his best, but Danny McBride was not made for kids' TV. He was not a kids' comedian actor. Danny Bride is at his best when he can be the asshole he has always played and stuff like Eastbound and Down and This is the End. And God, I think he was like, I'm trying to think like Tropic Thunder and all these different roles that Danny McBride has played the asshole and he's allowed to be, you know, raunchy and funny and all kinds of stuff. And he's not allowed to be that here. And he's doing his best to try and be funny with this terrible, terrible, terrible writing and... I, you know, hopefully it's money in the bank for him so he doesn't have to worry about, you know, rent or car payments or whatever. Anyway, after the characters are introduced, then there's a point where Bill Hader plays the leader of the pigs who comes to Bird Island to steal the eggs. And there's a long, like overly long sequence of events where the pigs befriend the birds so they can steal the eggs, and it's all Red making a fool of himself as the pigs completely, you know, trick the birds into letting them stay on the island. And it's completely unnecessarily long. And all it does is convince Red to go and find Mighty Eagle, the superhero of this island who helped save them from some thing that happened that they never delve into it they just say he is a hero what did he do don't worry about what he did he's a hero he is the hero of this island <sighs> anyway mighty eagle is probably my favorite character, just because he's played by Peter Dinklage, and Peter Dinklage probably has some of the best lines post-pee joke, post-elongated pee joke that was unnecessary. And, hey, turns out the hero was a zero who completely is resting on his laurels and is, hasn't done anything since whatever happened that they never get into. And... While they're up there, the pigs finally get away with the eggs and the birds realize they've been duped and they turn to Red, who was the only person to stop and think about... It's stupid. And Red leads them to the pig island and they use the slingshot that the pigs introduced to them to start flinging the birds from the games into the pig city to try and rescue the eggs. And the only thing I can really say in its favor besides Peter Dinklage's voice is the animation is solid. I mean, this is this is professional-grade animation, so good for Rovio for turning their gaming studio into a full animation studio. It's solid. But that, you know, pretty animation doesn't change the fact that the birds all look ugly and they're... And the writing is some of the worst kids I've ever seen from a major motion picture. Like, it's not Norma the North bad, but it's pretty darn close. Like, if Norma the North hadn't come out earlier this year, Angry Birds would probably be the low mark for kids entertainment for me. Just because when you can do stuff like DreamWorks Kung Fu Panda series 
or like the Lego movie that they've compared this to for who knows what reason, or even the upcoming stuff, like Laika's Kubo and the Two Strings, or Pixar's Finding Dory, or, ah, uh, God, what, I think Disney, no, Disney's, I think, taking a year off to, so that they can get two out, uh, the Pacific Islander, Princess, and something else, I forget what, but animation could do so much better, and that people are praising this movie, because, I mean, I can get that it makes money, because it's a property that everybody knows, everybody knows Angry Birds, but to hear that it's getting pr critical praise from people I would think know, would know better that have seen these movies. It feels like, oh, hey, it wasn't the worst thing I've ever seen. That means we can praise it. And I'm probably thrown off by stupid, stupid aggregators like Rotten Tomatoes that try to add a binary system to a medium that doesn't have a binary system to it aside from star ratings. Because that's the thing. If every critical review had a star rating, that would make sense to have a mathematical uh, aggregation of the re of the reviews. But because they not, most reviewers kind of have just a review of the movie like I'm doing, like I don't give a full star review. I either recommend or don't recommend the movie to people. Or, I, you know, I say whether or not I like the movie. But other than that, but how do you aggregate that into a numeral system? Like, how do you get 59% from reviews like that? So, yeah, the Rotten Tomatoes system is garbage. And the fact that, that, that they've managed to accumulate all these positive reviews from people who are probably just saying, oh, hey, it wasn't the worst thing ever, is... Uh, I really did not like this movie. And the more I think about it, the more I can't stand that I feel like I'm I feel like that scene in in Zoolander where Will Ferrell is like is freaking out over everybody saying, Oh Zoolander, ooh, I, I am I losing my mind? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. And yet and like there was a guy Thursday night after the opening of the Angry Birds movie who was coming out, oh hey, that was great, wasn't it? And I was like, he was like this 40, 45, probably 50-year-old man, God knows what. He may have even had some kind of disability. I don't know. Guy was kind of weird. And he was like, because like, who does that? I mean, I, I was part of conversations with fans at Civil War while we were standing in line because I entered the conversation kind of naturally. This guy just straight up came up to me and was like, hey, wasn't that great? I mean, uh, you'd think it would be terrible, but oh boy, that was a fun time. And I just had to be like, yep, sure was. And uh, I don't get it. And I swear if I find people that are in my social circle, they're like, oh, how could you not, how could you hate this movie? It's so much fun. This isn't a movie to end friendships over. This isn't, you know, like Transformers levels of bad. I mean, ultimately, you shouldn't end friendships over movie tastes anyway. But at the same time, I I cannot pick... I, I'm having trouble picturing what you would like about this. Because that's the thing. 
Kids entertainment is more than jingling keys and doing fast things and colorful images. Like, there's supposed to be a story there. One of my favorite movies from last year was the Peanuts movie. It was a 3D animated version of the Peanuts cartoons. And they told a relatively familiar story for the Peanuts universe. And it was very beautifully animated and it was very well thought out and executed. And yet people were like, oh, Angry Birds is the next Lego movie. And I don't get, I don't, I, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Because I don't see why. Because it's pee jokes and poop jokes and sex jokes. All kind and like, just because you have Jason Sudeikis say flock and pluck does not mean it's the same as getting away with the word it's Jason Sudeikis' way of getting around the fact that it's a PG-rated movie. And I feel like, okay, good, you made raunchy kids humor. Good for you. You want a cookie? They don't need a cookie. They can buy all the cookies they want. Blech. Blech. Just makes me sick thinking about it. So, yeah, guess what? I didn't like the Angry Birds movie. And if you did, good for you. Have a good time. Just... Don't talk to me about it. Ever. Blech. Anyway, after the break, we'll get into the discussion, which will kind of be more improv than previous discussions. I'll explain in a bit. Discussion is kind of eh, improv-y. I'm, I'm winging it this time. Probably not a good idea, but I am sans internet at the moment. My family got a new router, and ever since that router was installed, all of my Apple products have been completely useless. You know, the Wi-Fi... And yet, earlier this... Earlier this evening of the recording, Sunday, May 22nd, it was working just fine. Then all of a sudden, there was a point where it's just like, nope, not working anymore. We're done. And it's, I don't, I don't get it. It's never happened like this before, and I don't know what happens. I don't know what's happening. And yet everything else, like, my PS3 has, has fine connection, my 3DS before had a fine connection. It's just the Apple products, and I don't know what's happening. So yeah, I'm kind of sans internet at the moment, which is why I didn't look anything up and didn't have any facts for the reviews. And since I wasn't able to really pin down and prepare the 70s throwback review discussion that I was thinking of for this episode... I'm just going to kind of wing it and talk about what pretty much everybody else has been talking about. The Ghostbusters remake and how it's the most disliked video on YouTube. And now people are actually coming out and saying that they will not review the movie. Most notoriously, James Rolfe, a.k.a. the Angry Video Game Nerd, who is an avowed Ghostbusters fan, apparently. 
I stopped watching him after I graduated college because I got sick of Mike Matei's poop and ass jokes because that's what a lot of his, the angry video game nerd was. And I'm sure he moved beyond that. You know, the early stuff that was what made him famous. And I'm sure he's fine now doing more mature reviews the same way Doug Walker does. But I don't care. I don't care about the angry video game nerd anymore. And the fact that he doesn't want to see the Ghostbusters remake, well, he's not really a film reviewer. I mean, he does Cinema Massacre. That's the name of his studio. But he's was he was the angry video game nerd. He's not the angry movie nerd. He's not the angry cinema nerd. He's... The angry video game nerd. So he talks about video games. So so what? Yeah, he's a Ghostbusters fan, and he he's not going to do a review of the movie. He's probably not going to see the new movie. And the people are getting into flame wars on social media about people saying, "Oh, it's not about the fact that they're chicks," and yet nobody's really nobody really got this upset when the Total Recall reboot happened. When the Michael Bay Transformers movies happened, when the RoboCop remake happened, I mean, there was that all. There was always that contingent of people who got pissed at remaking movies. Like, whenever a remake comes out, there's always that slew of comments saying, "We don't need to remake things. Hollywood is so bankrupt for ideas." And anybody who's paid any actual attention to Hollywood knows that this has always been the case. Always. It used to be before VHS and before home before there was a home market, there was they would remake movies all the time. They remade King Kong, they've remade Godzilla. They've remade all, you know, they've remade all these different movies. They've remade other movies. Seven Samurai got remade into The Magnificent Seven and into Battle Beyond the Stars. That's what happens because there's only so many stories you can tell. The stories have all been the same myths we've passed down since time in memoriam. So the stories have never changed. You can... And, Joseph Campbell made his living writing about this very subject. The fact that everything, you know, there's the monomyth. The fact that there's the hero's journey, and then there's also all these different, like, I have a book about the six movie plots. There are six major plots to any movie. And, I mean, there's, there's whole points of my English classes from college talking about man versus, I think even in high school we were talking about man versus Man versus nature, man versus man, man versus self. The, the, the writing hasn't advanced beyond the basics. So when I hear people say, Hollywood's bankrupt for ideas, all these comic books and remakes, and they've always done that. Who are you people? Where have you been? Jaws and the Godfather. Two of the best-loved, most well-regarded movies ever made were adapted from pulp novels. Novels that would have never otherwise probably... I mean, they were probably popular the day in the day if there was never a Jaws movie, if there was never a Godfather movie. Who we Would we even be talking about these books? Would we even be talking about the Godfather book or the Jaws book? 
Probably not, because from what I hear, those books aren't that all that great. How many times have Stephen King stories been adapted? He just got through with a Hulu miniseries. Cell is on the way, and he's already working on The Dark Tower with Idris Elba, coincidentally, as the gunslinger. I'm interested to see that because he seeing him in that sort of trench coat, western look, looks interesting. I'm, I never got through the gunslinger book. I don't know the story. I think I'll wait until the movie comes out. That way I don't have that dichotomy of book versus movie at the time. But I'm interested to see how that happens, how that works out. But yeah, comic books are no different from any other form of media. If there's a thing that's popular, it will be adapted into a movie or into something else. It will, you know, popular video games are adapted into books. Popular books are adapted into TV series. And it's, it's, it's been there. That selfie series was a adaptation of, I believe, Pygmalion. You know, it's, it, it was, because I, because it was like, they used uh, the My Fair Lady is the reference I know, but they used those names from My Fair Lady and they adapted it to modern times with John Cho and Karen Gillan as these roles. And I realized like three episodes in that that's what was going on. And I first, at first I got pissed because I was like, wait, what does this have to do with My Fair Lady? And then someone pointed out that, hey, you know, it's fine. That's not important. The point is whether or not you like the show. And I pretty much didn't really care for Selfie. Stupid name and really, you know, not great writing in and of itself. So, yeah, adaptation of Pygmalion or not, it wasn't all that great as a series. But, yeah, The Walking Dead was a comic. American Splendor is probably one of my favorite movies. And it is an amazing, experimental look at the life of Harvey Picar through cinema, through documentary, through animation. It is so interesting. That was a comic. The Peanuts were comic strips. How many Garfield specials have you seen? This has always been there. Because guess what? Entertainment is a business. And if something has a viable means of making money, it will be adapted into whatever format makes money. Mobile games, books, TV series, movies... Animation, live action, who cares how many times they tell a story or how much you loved that original story so much? How could they ever? You haven't seen the movie yet. Because that's the thing. People are getting so pissed at this trailer. How many times have trailers lied to you? How many times did you watch, how many times did you particularly watch the Phantom Menace trailer and think, this is going to be the most amazing thing ever, and then you sit there and you watch trade negotiations? Or how many times have you seen a terrible, terrible, hokey, cheesy trailer, and you're like, that's going to be a piece of garbage. And then you sit there and you're like, oh, wow, that was great. That was a fun time. I enjoyed myself. I had no idea that it was going to be this good. Trailers lie because guess what a trailer is just a commercial and the commercial is aimed at an audience and guess what the Ghostbusters commercial is aimed at people who will recognize Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy and Leslie Jones 
you don't see a lot of Kate McKinnon stuff because Kate McKinnon doesn't have the draw that Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig have, and especially Leslie Jones is getting, because Leslie Jones is hilarious, and I love her, and she's amazing. And yeah, she plays the sassy black woman, but guess what? How many times have you seen her on SNL do just that? She's not always a sassy black woman. She's able to do other characters, yes. But Leslie Jones, by herself, on Weekend Update, she's usually a sassy black woman. That's just who she plays. That's who she's comfortable playing. Or she may not be comfortable playing. She may just be good at it. You know, nobody's talking to Leslie Jones about her. the impact of her playing a stereotype is on media. Because guess what? Leslie Jones don't care. Leslie Jones... Guess what? Leslie Jones probably doesn't care. She's just probably doing the comedy that she do, loves to do. I was just watching... Um, I've been catching up on Game Grumps, and I watched their playthrough of Mortal Kombat with Rob Schneider because somebody showed Rob Schneider Aaron freaking out over Real Rob, the Netflix series he did, and like Aaron couldn't figure out who the series was for because everybody was a jerk and nobody was likable except for his wife, Patricia. And then Rob and Patricia, I believe, because I... She's Hispanic. I don't know if Mexican or uh, Spain or Latin America. I don't know where she's from specifically, but I do know that they emphasize that her name is pronounced Patricia instead of Patricia. So Robin Patricia came on the show and talked about it. And it was Rob made these amazing points about making the art you want to make and not worrying about popular opinion all the time. Because that's the thing. You do have to worry about popular opinion at points if you want to be successful. Because if you don't follow trends and follow things that work, you won't be successful. But at the same time, if you're not making the art you want to make, you will be miserable. So yeah, all the stuff that Rob Schneider does, whether you like it or not, that's the stuff that he finds funny. And yeah, I'm, I, I think I said in my Norm of the North review way back when, that I can't believe that this is some of the most unfunny stuff I've ever heard. And I held it against Rob Schneider like it was his movie. And I think he was just a voice in it, and he liked the story, and he liked the jokes, and he was allowed to do whatever. I, but, and hearing him, because that's the thing, when you when there's somebody you don't like, like and like Adam Sandler or Rob Schneider, that whole crew, or Friedberg and Seltzer, or Michael Bay or whoever, if you don't, if you, if you never hear them outside of public personas and interviews and things of that nature, if you don't hear them candidly, you forget that they're people and that they have, you know, their own thoughts and emotions and their own point of view on things. And I, I gained a lot of respect for Rob Schneider hearing him talk about the making of real Rob and his career and, you know, the stuff with new media that he was interested in because he had never heard of Let's Plays before. Like somebody showed him Game Grumps, and he was really liked what the kids were doing, and he enjoyed coming on and watching his wife Patricia wipe the floor with everybody. <laughs> uh, go watch the episode. It's a lot of fun. Patricia is just... I think she's, like, late 20s, probably, you know, a little bit older than me, but she just, like, Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Just wipes the floor with 
everybody who plays against her. And, you know, not, you know it was great. I'm glad that she showed up because if it was just Rob Schneider just sitting in on... Because um, that was the other thing was... I think Steve-O just kind of sat in and talked. Whereas when they had um, uh, Raleigh something, the guy from Game of Thrones, Grey Worm, when they had him on for a couple of episodes... Uh, Raleigh actually played a few games and there's like great uh, stuff of him getting upset at a Wii edition of Wheel of Fortune and it's hilarious and you get to see him upset at that and Mario Kart 64 and it's fun and you get this and then with Rob Schneider you get to see his wife wipe the floor with everybody on Mortal Kombat but then you also get this there was a point where the game crashed and so it was just them talking. It was just Rob kind of giving this candid interview to Aaron and Danny, and it was fun, and it was an, it was enlightening at points. Just to, to hear all this stuff and to not be like, hey, Rob Schneider, derp, de, derp, de, derp, you know, not think of him as the joke that pop culture has made of him, but hear his point of view and why he does the things he does and what he thinks, because that's a... Cause Danny was going on about how he's a big fan of Deuce Bigelow, and I really haven't seen the movies because there was, a, there was the point where Rob Schneider just didn't make me laugh anymore, and I think it kind of makes me want to go back. And even if I don't enjoy the movies, I'll at least give them a chance again, although I haven't had the time to sit back and watch old stuff. I'm so focused on keeping forward. So, yeah, I... Kind of got, so yeah. Rob Schneider gave me an insight into that sort of creative process from the from from the creator. You know, instead of looking in, thinking of Hollywood as a stare. You know, just Hollywood in general. Paul Feig. You know, the actors like the because you, know, you forget if you don't know anything about the business how much control is just put in play with all these different. <sighs> with all these different people. Not just, you know, the actors, sometimes actors have more control, sometimes producers have a lot more control. I was saying in The Nice Guys that the Marvel Studios kind of had their own storyline that they wanted to push, and so I feel like Shane Black was kind of reined in from being what we could, you know, a full-on Shane Black, you know, we didn't get a real Shane Black movie the same way you did with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or with The Nice Guys. You got this truncated Shane Black movie with Disney Marvel holding the reins and kind of guiding them in a direction. And I feel like that's an issue because that's the other thing is studios have, you know, that if, if it's anybody to blame, it's usually a studio and it's usually a studio executive like this. Just a few weeks ago, like there was this culling of fairly well-regarded shows like Grandfathered, The Grinder, The Muppets Reboot. Nashville was with a rating dynamo from what I could tell. Like people were buying the songs, people were watching the show, people were all into Nashville. And yet that got cut along with these other shows that had just started out. And... A lot of them were from ABC, and it turns out they suffered the Firefly effect. I don't know if it's officially the Firefly effect. I don't know if it's officially the Firefly effect, but it's something I'd like to refer to it as that because 
I doubt Firefly was the first movie to suffer from this, but basically when I refer to the Firefly effect, it's in reference to when Firefly was originally uh, greenlit for Fox, there was a different studio head. And I believe mid-production or just as they were about to air, a new studio head at Fox TV came in and did not like... uh, and there's this thing, it's, it's inherent in all television, but whenever a new studio head comes in, they go about completely salting the earth to whatever was done in the previous administration. It's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Unless something the studio says is off limits, then if, it's, if, if a show is going to be cut and this new studio head wants to take it in a different direction, then that's what's going to happen. Because all these interesting shows that were on ABC, a couple were on Fox that got cut, like Grinder and Grandfathered. But especially ABC got the worst of it because a new studio exec came in and the Firefly effect kicked in, where the new studio head decided to salt the earth of the previous administration so that they could bring in, from what I can tell... Lethal Weapon, the series, like the Exorcist miniseries or something, and it's all, it's what people complain about with movies. It's now television. This new studio exec believes that the best way is to go the television route and adapt properties that were popular. And I I get where they're coming from because that's a business decision. It's not a creative decision. But that's... Not always the case, because, I mean, they tr- they tried remaking old TV shows. Sometimes you get a Hawaii Five O that hangs on there for a couple of seasons. I don't know how it's still going, but then you get stuff like Ironside, and there's somebody tried to do with, like, Morris Chestnut or something, and a, it was a black cop in a wheelchair, and that was a whole thing in the 80s. I think that lasted for a few seasons, and they tried to bring that back, and it didn't work. Or they tried adapting Hannibal, and it struggled to get three seasons out. And people still were at, and the third season had to cram in everything to finish because NBC was going to cut it. Which, you know, good for them because most series don't even get that. Television is very cutthroat. And that's what happened on ABC. And I guess that's my thing is I take a lot of these behind the scenes stuff with a grain of salt. Because I'm, I'm, once again, I'm making assumptions based on what other people have said. I was not privy to these behind-the-scenes conversations, so I don't know what happened. I'm only making assumptions based on previous experiences from what I've heard and from what other people have, you know. I'm just going off of what other people have told me about the business and making my own assumptions. But, in, so, when it comes to Ghostbusters... I never felt any vitriol towards that. Because that's the thing. Dan Aykroyd has been trying to make a Ghostbusters 3 for decades. but af- And after the debacle that was Blues Brothers 2000, do we really want Dan Aykroyd at the head of another Ghostbusters movie trying to recapture that old magic? And that's the thing. People were complaining about, oh, this is happening just after Harold Ramis has died, as though they were waiting for the dirt to be freshly pressed on his grave so they could, you know, 
trample all over it and make him roll over in his grave or something. And it's... Once again, this is all assumptions that people are making without any knowledge of the behind the scenes. And without that knowledge of what was going on behind the scenes, all anybody is doing is making assumptions. And quite frankly, knowing what goes on behind the scenes doesn't help all that much if you don't like the product to begin with. You, you could, like, it's interesting to know that Jaws is such a blockbuster and yet it had all kinds of production problems and had to hide the shark because the animatronics didn't work in the water. And yet that turned out to be the best parts of the movie was the hiding of the shark that you don't see it ultimately when it kills. That worked in its favor. So, and yet people, there are all kinds of stuff that I make assumptions of terrible comedies that were probably a blast to make behind the scenes yet never turn out well because it's not funny. It's just a bunch of people goofing off and it's not a coherent enough story to warrant a full movie. You get a lot of stuff with a lot of the improv movies. Keanu suffered from that a bit. Thankfully, Key and Peele do put more focus on story, but stuff like We're the Millers I had issues with, the Vacation remake I had issues with, that's the other thing. People weren't talking about... I don't remember people talking about this when Vacation came up. I mean, there were probably a few voices saying, we don't need a Vacation remake, the same voices that say we don't need a remake of anything that don't understand how storytelling works and... You know, are you know, are those people that aren't privy to the business complaining about how the business works without any? It's, it's people who have no understanding of the process complaining about the process without any knowledge of it. It's you know that pro issue. That's what I take umbrage with is people complaining about stuff that they ha obviously have no idea what they're complaining about or what it, it bugs them. It's just, you know, it's something sticks in their craw and it bugs them and there's nothing they can do about it. So they complain. And I don't know how good Ghostbusters will turn out. I've seen Paul Fagg movies, some are hit or miss with me. Like I think he did Tammy and Tammy wasn't very good. At the same time, I enjoyed spy and I enjoyed, a, I enjoyed parts of, no, I don't. I think I don't think Paul Feig directed the boss. I think that was her husband. But yeah, Paul Feig, the Heat, the Heat was the other one he did with Melissa McCarthy, and those were decent. I don't know how they'll turn out adapting previous work, but at the same time, Dan Aykroyd's gonna show up. Ernie Hudson, I think, has a cameo lined up. I don't know if they've given that away yet, but I mean that's the other thing. People are complaining about. Leslie Jones being a stereotype. When Ernie Hudson came in, he was just a working class dude. He didn't give a crap about the paranormal. I mean, there's there's a famous line where, if if it's a steady paycheck, I'll believe anything. And it's so it's like he's he's a schmo. I mean, that's the other thing. People were complaining about why isn't Leslie Jones one of it? And there was a thing of well, her character was supposed to be Melissa McCarthy. I don't know how much of that is true. Once again, that's all hearsay from me, from people, which is all any of the any of what we're talking about is is hearsay, and Lizzie Jones may have been originally slated to play a scientist. I don't know. Maybe she was more comfortable being a you know a you know a layperson a you know the Ernie Hudson character because that's the other thing is that dynamic was three was a paranormal investigator, two scientists, and 
a guy and a guy and a working class man. And, you know, that it was just, that's how it turned out. I mean, they needed a fourth Ghostbuster and it turned out to be Ernie Hudson. And I think what they're missing is that I feel like, because I feel like the, that's the one thing is you've got Kate McKinnon being kind of like a crazy, crazy sort of like mad scientist with engineering stuff. And then you've got Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy kind of being two nerds, like two people who, from what I, from what I've seen in the trailer are just nerdy about ghosts. So I think you were missing that Bill Murray aspect of the smart Alec, you know, who cares? He's taking advantage. You know, he's, he, because that's the thing. Bill Murray's character was never a believer. He was never like, a, he, he never really cared about the ghost. He was just in it for the money. And I feel like they don't have that in the remake and that you've got two characters, essentially two Dan Aykroyd characters, one crazy version of Egon, and then the Ernie Hudson character. And I don't know how that dynamic will work. Once again, you we have to wait and see the movie in its entirety to make a full review. That's the thing. You can't review something you haven't seen or read or listened to. You can't, if you haven't experienced it, you can't really review it. Watching a trailer is not the same as watching a movie. You can't, as much as I've said, like, if you've seen the Money Monster, I've told people that if you've seen the Money Monster trailer, you've seen the movie. And that's me joking. It's very hyperbolic because, yeah, the trailers really highlighted the plot points of the movie so much so that you really didn't need to see the movie itself if you've seen the trailers. But most trailers have done that. I mean, God, back in the 50s and 60s, they would almost give away the movie just to, because it was all about a commercial of telling people to go see this movie. And there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of nuance. It's, trailer marketing has always been about whatever it takes to get people in seats. That's why the Ghostbusters trailer recently gave away Slimer. And the Civil War trailer gave away Spider-Man. And it's all about what, you know, it's not about the plot, you know, it's not about, show, you know, hiding stuff for surprises in the movie. It's about whatever it takes to get butts in seats. And quite honestly, I think all this backlash is just going to further help the movie. I'm making that assumption basically because people are going to see this movie almost out of spite to be like, oh, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna see this movie come hell or high water, so we can tell people what we really think, and it's gonna be like a hate watch for a lot of these people, or they may, or they may stay at home. They may not be watching the movie. They may just want to stay at home and gripe about a movie they haven't seen, because that's the thing. P plenty of people, it, it's easy to gripe about something you haven't experienced. But a good review comes from stuff that you experience by playing the video game, by watching the movie, by listening to the music, by reading the book. You, because that's the thing, I've griped and moaned about stuff like the Twilight series or most of Friedberg and Seltzer stuff, but a lot of the stuff I haven't seen. Actually, crap, have I seen all of Friedberg and Seltzer? No, I haven't seen Disaster Movie. I've seen everything else. 
I've seen, I've managed to see everything else. Date movie, epic movie, meet the Spartans. I still meet the Spartans with my dad, of all people. I don't know how we ended up with meet the Spartans. I think it's because, oh, it's reminded him of 300, so he thought it'd be as good. Poor unfortunate soul, we had to sit through that. But the only one I haven't seen is a disaster movie, so I don't really talk about disaster movie. I just talk about the career from what I've seen. So, without that experience to go on, I'm only talking about what I've seen. What, you know, the trailers, the clips, the stuff everybody else has seen. So, without seeing it, you know, experiencing it myself, it's not the same. Whereas, when... I actually sat through Fifty Shades of Grey. I can, I can easily tell you that that is the worst thing that ever came out that I saw from a major motion picture, from a major Hollywood studio, a major big budget production. It's the worst thing I've ever seen because it is atrocious. It is just atrocious from page to screen. And yeah, I experienced that movie and it's... God awful, and I experienced Norm of the North, and I experienced the Angry Birds movie, and I've sat through these things, and then I've commented on them having seen the movie. And I feel like commenting on your thoughts on a movie that's in post-production slash about to be released, and talking about a trailer for a movie is unnecessary like negative hype or whatever the antithesis of hype is backlash I guess I don't know if that's necessarily the antithesis to hype because that's the thing they just released the information in the cast for Thor Ragnarok which included Carl Urban Kate Blanchett and Jeff Goldblum I mean it's a great and I um they mentioned um an African-American actress. I forget where she's from, but she's playing a... Val- she's playing a character named Valkyrie who's kind of like um, a female Asgardian warrior alongside Sif. And it's I'm interested to see what they do with her, how that part of the story, but I'm... You know, having that, just hearing the cast, I was hyped about Thor Ragnarok in a way that I was never really hyped about the previous Thor movies. But at the same time, all that hype could go to the way of the, of the Phantom Menace and be completely pointless. You know, people were people were also talking about Michael Keaton playing the Vulture in Spider-Man: Homecoming, the official Marvel Cinematic Universe Spider-Man. I think he's officially far, part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe because I think it's Marvel Studios licensing a Sony property and Sony allowing Marvel to kind of do the behind-the-scenes stuff to make Spider-Man work on screen the way that they haven't. I don't know. That's all backroom deals again that I have no privy to, that I am not privy to. So I think that's like, that makes for a good discussion. I'm not sure what else I can say. Yeah. Trailers lie. Hollywood's been doing... Holly, you know, this isn't a comeback. They, This isn't a remake. This isn't a comeback. Hollywood's been doing this for years. So don't get all upset when your thing gets remade because guess what? Hollywood's done that since day one. One of Edison's first 
motion pictures with his moving picture camera was a moving picture version of a postcard. They've adapted Frankenstein. They adapted... Nosferatu was a illegal adaptation of Dracula that had to be burned because it because it broke the copyright of Bram because it broke Bram Stoker's copyright in Germany. This has been going on forever. So don't get don't throw a hissy fit when it's something you actually like this time. God, I didn't even get into the whole feminism aspect of the fact that it's a female cast. As if that mattered, it's friggin' Ghostbusters. They had a woman in a wheelchair in the anim in the second animated series that they did. So whatever, whatever, w whatever, whatever, whatever they do, however they change it, doesn't matter as long as the final product works. And it may not work for you. You may still feel the same way that you did that you do now, being pissed about it. But who cares? As long as the final, as long as, as just wait until the final product is released to actually say something about it. Because who cares? At this point, it doesn't matter because we haven't seen the actual movie. You know, I mean, people were hyped about Batman v Superman because they thought, oh, hey, it's going to be good. And to some people, it worked for them because they were fans of Man of Steel. To me, I got exactly what I expected. But I still saw the thing. I still experienced the movie in order to comment on it because that's what a good reviewer does. And who cares if some guy doesn't want to review Ghostbusters? Because quite frankly, I never cared that James Rolfe doesn't want to review Ghostbusters. Despite the fact that this is kind of inspired by the fact that people are talking about James Rolfe not wanting to review a Ghostbusters remake that hasn't come out yet. But then that's the thing. It's not called Ghostbusters 3 because it's not about the four original Ghostbusters, especially since Harold Ramis is dead. This is Ghostbusters because it's taking, it's telling a different storyline. And from what I know of the movie, it, Venkman and all of the original Ghostbusters, aside from Harold Ramis, who has passed away, are still within that universe. It's just... Like, I think it takes place in Boston. And, like, this is, like, a Ghostbusters franchise sort of thing. You know? It's like, this is McDonald. You know, I, I don't know if calling it Ghostbusters Beantown, like, see it, like it's a freaking CSI or something, would have made it any better. But I'm willing to withhold judgment on the movie itself until it comes out. I mean, I had my prejudices against Batman v Superman and against all kinds of other terrible movies from the from announcement to trailer to release but i but until i see the thing my opinion is invalid and that's just it all these opinions are invalid because nobody's seen the thing cuz it's not out yet so until it's out so until it's out nobody's opinion matters not even mine well that's quite the impromptu discussion so that's about it. That about does it for this week, which means it's time for the plugs. If you're listening to the podcast, you are probably listening to it on SoundCloud. SoundCloud is the home of Popcorn Junkie. And if you want to follow us on SoundCloud, whether or not you're listening to us there, just look up Popcorn Junkie on SoundCloud.com or go to SoundCloud.com slash Popcorn 
Dash Junkie. I'm also on the iTunes Store. I can't access any ratings or reviews, so I don't know if anybody's said anything yet, but I am I am on the iTunes Store. If you look up Popcorn Junkie, you will see my logo of me of my orange mug chomping on some popcorn staring at a movie. And if you want to help me out and help the podcast grow, just leave a five-star rating and review on the iTunes Store cuz that's the thing. If you're if, if you're on the iTunes store, you can kajigger with the rating system and get, put me to the top of the list. All you have to do is leave a five-star rating and review, and when I actually have internet access, I might be able to read your review on the show. It won't, hey, it may not even be a five-star rating. If you leave a review of the show, I'll probably read it and comment on it. So... If you want to help the podcast, leave a five-star rating and review on the iTunes store. Just open up the iTunes store and look up Popcorn Junkie under the podcast section. If you also want to help out the show, there is a Patreon for the show. No patrons as of yet, unfortunately, but hey, I am a fledgling podcast. This is only episode 11. So, if you want to help the podcast grow, you can leave a monthly donation. It's like a little digital tip jar for this podcast to say, hey, I like you. Here's a little something from me. And rather than do it per episode, because I want to do more episodes, I set it up so that you can just leave a monthly donation. You can. There are all kinds of tiers for any level of donator, from $1 to however many dollars you want to donate. And if you want to help the podcast out, just leave a donation on patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. Right now, the main goal of the Patreon is to start a secondary podcast wherein I talk about movies and how I would improve upon them. So for this week's episode, let's say I want to do my version of the Angry Birds movie. Let's say Rovio came to me and said, hey, you're a big time Hollywood producer. Make, help us make a movie. And I would b- adapt the Angry Birds mobile game into a movie. And not just that, I've got all kinds of stuff I want to talk about. Age of Ultron, I, the Nightmare on Elm Street reboot, how to reboot that. Do a transform, do a version of Transformers, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Fantastic Four, Superman. If you want to listen to, I believe, episode three, that's why I do a basic version of that about making a Superman movie. So if you want to hear me talk about how I would make a movie better, be it a movie I, a terrible movie I didn't like and make it one that I could, or a good, or a movie I did like that didn't quite work. Stuff like The Last Witch Hunter or Seventh Son, you know, these weird fantasy movies. I, you know, I didn't hate Age of Ultron. I just want to talk about stuff that I would do to make it better. You know, there's plenty of stuff in the Marvel Universe that I can talk about with that. And there's plenty of movie franchises that I can talk about. And hey, if you want to help the podcast out, I can even take requests. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash popcornjunkie and leave a monthly donation. And if you want to just keep in touch with the show, you can follow us on social media at facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. All social media interaction is done through the Facebook page, and the Facebook page leaks into the Twitter account at cornjunkiepod. So if you want to keep in touch with the podcast, get my initial thoughts on a movie as I leave the theater, then all you have to do is go to facebook.com and slash popcornjunkie and like the page or follow at Pod on Twitter.com. Or if you want to interact with the podcast, and I actually have internet access, then all you have to do is email the podcast at popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. If you want to leave your thoughts on the podcast, criticisms, endorsements, anything of that nature, all you have to do is email the podcast at popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. 
Send me an email and hey, I might even read it on the show. That about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and if this keeps up, I'll have to head out California way for some of that internet. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by The M on SoundCloud.com. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Go to nafio.deviantart.com for more of his art. to Firefly, uh, all that from one sneeze. Ugh. Ay vey. Ugh. I don't, I wonder how many other podcasters have this problem. Uh, okay.